Uh, what's happening, Riv? So today I want to talk to you about something that's been on my mind a lot lately, and it's the role of social media algorithms and AI in our world today. Now, you see, what we live in right now is an age where technology is advancing at an unprecedented pace. And we have devices, uh, you probably all have them in your pockets right now, um, that recognize your face. We have algorithms that can predict your behavior. We have AI that can make decisions on our behalf. And while these innovations have undoubtedly brought many benefits, they've also brought profound questions. Questions about what it means to be human what it means to be created in God's image, and how we can navigate this new landscape in a way that honors him. And so when it comes to like social media algorithms and AI, the stakes are particularly high because these tools that we have are shaping the way we think, the way we relate to one another, and the way we understand the world around us. They're influencing our decisions, our beliefs, our values, and while they may seem like, like neutral technologies, the truth is they're often designed with specific goals in mind that may not align with God's vision for us. And so today, we're gonna look at that topic uh, and and explore how we as Christians can engage with AI and social media uh, in in a way that honors God and reflects his love to the world around us. Now, I I have a little confession to make. If that didn't sound like me, there's for good reason. I used artificial intelligence to write that introduction. (laughs) Um, I downloaded ChatGPT and I typed into it, write a sermon introduction about social media algorithms and AI. And that was it. Like, that's the world we live in right now, isn't it? Um, we live in a world that has fundamentally changed from a technological perspective, and we're not going back. You can't unring the bell of technology. And I really truly believe that the last five years or so have been uh, years that have been, in a, in a sense, governed by, uh, by social media, haven't they? And, and, and because our, our world has been governed by social media, it's actually been governed in a lot of ways by the algorithms that's behind the social media. And back in December, when ChatGPT in particular started getting really popular, I predicted uh, to some friends of mine that 2023 was going to be the year of AI and where things were going to change a lot. And we're here in May and our world has already fundamentally changed a lot. And now this technology that we shaped has begun to be a shaping force for us. And I remember when I was a teenager, My dad, uh, when I was learning how to drive, he would quiz me on every local highway and which direction it went and where it went. And my guess is some of you had the same experience if you're around my age, but my guess is if you're significantly younger than me, no one's bothered because you have GPS now. We used to have spatial awareness. Now we don't have spatial awareness. And I can prove it to you, like in three seconds. On the count of three, I want everyone to point south. One, two, three. See? Like, I, I tell you what, what I can see from my perspective, anybody with gray hair pointed that direction, uh, right? And everybody else was like, I don't, I don't know, I have to pull my phone out, right, to, to figure that out. That's just the world that we're living in. And by the way, I have no idea which way I pointed at Rio Town or Westside or anybody online. I'm just, 
spatial awareness there. But it's not just like benign stuff, right? Like GPS, um, algorithms and AI, all that kind of stuff in our world today actually just governs a lot. Like on Netflix, you open Netflix, it's going to tell you what movies you want to watch based on movies that you have watched before. TikTok has a For You page for a reason, and that is that TikTok knows the videos you're going to like before you like them, before you've even seen them. Facebook has this, this, this feed where it has this little suggested for you byline. In fact, I went and ordered a takeout from Charlie Kang's about two weeks ago, and when I went to their website on my phone, it had at the top, here's all the stuff you've ordered from us before. Do you want that again? That's the world that we live in. Now, I want to be careful because I am not a sky is falling guy when it comes to technology. I love technology. And for the most part, I'm not one of those people who recommends what some people would call the Benedictine option, which is that we go back to a monk-like stage where we, like Benedictine monks, we hide from the world and, and try to protect what we have because the world has changed and, and short of some sort of Netflix end of the world movies plot coming true, this technology is not changing. It's here. And so we just need to figure out how to be faithful followers of Jesus in a world like the one that we live in. And what we're going to do is we're going to use a really old analog technology and a really old book to do that. And I don't know if you guys have ever even noticed this, uh, but whenever I teach on the stage, I have a lot of tech all the way around me. I got tech everywhere. And I always read from an analog Bible. (laughs) And I do that for a reason because it helps me to mentally keep this book in a different category from everything else that I'm reading. That's why I do it, because this book is in a different category than everything else I'm reading. And, and, and AI algorithms might know me better than I know myself, but the Holy Spirit knows everything about me, and this book is living and breathing, and through the Holy Spirit, it changes us. And so I want to symbolically keep it analog, so I remember that it's a different type of book. And so today, let's dive into it. Um, We are in a series going through the book of Colossians, and we're going to look at three sentences that span three verses today, and those three sentences and those three verses speak volumes about the digital age that we're living in right now. But what I want to do is I want to take a running start by rereading last week's passage, because last week's passage has everything to do with this week's passage, and we're going to use it as an opening prayer. So what I want to do is I want to invite you to stand with me, because we're going to stretch our legs for a little bit. We're going to stand. I'm going to read this as a prayer, and then we're going to dive in. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So what we just read, that little passage right there from last week, is who Jesus is. 
right? So whether you agree with her or not, whether you like it or not, this is how the world was created. Jesus is supreme above all things. Jesus is the one for whom all things were created and by whom all things were created. Jesus is in that order of preeminence above everything as the only one who can save. And because of this, Paul can launch into a three verse long logical progression starting in verse 21, where he says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. Now, this is a declaration of how all of us once were. And what I want to do is I want to reread this and I want you to personalize it for a second by inserting yourself into the sentence. You ready? So once, that's your name, was alienated and hostile in your mind as expressed in your evil actions. Isn't that an encouraging truth? Now, the thing about this is, is it's sort of tricky for us today because most of us wouldn't look at our lives and say, I think I'm evil, right? We wouldn't look at our actions and say, well, my actions are hostile toward God, that I'm somehow alienated from him. But this is the consistent theme in scripture, For instance, we're told back in the book of Romans, uh, chapter eight, verse seven, it says this, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. That's a fascinating phrase. This phrase, mindset of the flesh. What does that mean? Well, the Bible uses the term flesh to describe kind of our earthly nature, the thing that we're born with, right? And this verse reminds us that who we are deep down in our guts, the way we are created is we are unable to obey God because the mindset of what we were born with is hostile. Our our, our mindset is anti-God. That's our default nature. In fact, that has been the predominant view of humanity through almost every culture, down through almost every historical perspective, down through all of human history. It is our human experience, right? Like we just did parent-child dedications and they were cute, I know. But no one has to teach a child to be disrespectful, do they? Do you have to teach a kid how to be selfish? Do you need to teach a kid how to throw a temper tantrum? The reason you don't have to is because it's in our nature. So way back in the fifth century, a a theological cage match went down in Christianity over this issue. There was this guy um, in one corner, we'll just put him in this corner over here, um, was a North African by the name of Augustine. And Augustine agreed with the view that I just presented right there, um, that we are all born with this original sin. And in the other corner was this British monk by the name of Pelagius. And Pelagius believed that we were all born innocent and that the world around us corrupts us. And Augustine pretty much back in the fifth century wiped the theological mat with Pelagius. And no serious theological scholar has disagreed until the 18th century. And right around the 18th century, the world began to agree with Pelagius. And now I would argue that our world's predominant view is Pelagius's view. And it's this, we're born innocent. The world around us corrupts us and we can become perfect, but the only way we can become perfect and innocent is by transforming culture and the systems around us so they'll stop corrupting us so much. Have you heard that sort of viewpoint throughout our world? This was the impetus behind Pelagius' view, and it was the impetus behind, for instance, the Russian Revolution. 
which led to over 100 million deaths in the last century because there is no such thing as a perfect society that you can create that will create perfect people. Why not? Because the mindset of the flesh (laughs) is hostile to God. Indeed, it, it, it cannot submit to God's law. That's kind of our predominant default wiring. Or as Paul wrote to the Colossians, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed by your evil actions. And when we hear a word like evil, we have to have a category in which to define what that evil thing is. Well, the Bible uses the word sin to talk about evil. And at Riv, we just say that sin is any failure to reflect the image of God in nature, attitudes, or actions. And we tend to only think about our actions. We tend to think that way. But even this verse, what does it say? It starts with a hostility in your mind. That's an attitude, right? And then it turns into, it's expressed in our, our evil actions. In other words, your nature is fundamentally wired and oriented away from how God created this world to exist. So you naturally think that good is evil and evil is good. That's kind of a default position for us. And there are a lot of things that seem natural to us, but the Bible calls those things sin. Now, I do have to apologize for something I did earlier. I manipulated you, not just with your AI but I had you read your name in in this verse that we read. And while that is philosophically and technically true, it actually isn't in this verse, I apologize, Um, because the word you is plural. So when he's writing this, he wasn't writing this to this one person, to to you. Um, He's writing it to all of us. I was at a conference in Omaha last week. And so I'm in Omaha. There's the the guy who was emceeing the conference was from LA. And he got up on stage and he he used the word y'all. And then he said, I can't believe I just said y'all. I've only been here in the Midwest for one day and I'm using the word y'all. And nobody laughed because we don't say y'all. Right? It's just not a thing in the Midwest. I, of course, I thought that until yesterday when one of our staffers slacked everybody and said, y'all, and I thought, well, maybe I'm wrong. But if you live in the Upper Peninsula, what do you say? You guys, right. Okay, so that's about as close as we can get in Michigan. So let's retranslate this verse. Once you guys um, were alienated and hostile in, in, in use guises? I don't know how that works. Minds as expressed in use guises, evil actions. Okay, this is plural. And so that's a more accurate way of saying this. What he's saying is to us as a collective, to you as a church body, to us as humanity, he says, once you guys were, and that's great, isn't it? He says, you guys used to be like this, but something happened. Something happened changed. Verse 22. But now he, that's Jesus, the Jesus that he just got done giving that big long speech about, that Jesus has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you as holy, faultless, and blameless before him. The thing that happened is Jesus reconciled you. Exactly. It's rough, I know. But here's the thing. Reconciled is such a great word because it's relational. What Paul is saying is you were out of sync. You were out of relationship with God. You were, remember he said in the last verse, he said you were alienated. 
But now you're reconciled. You're in right relationship with God. Not only uh, the stuff that you've done, this, this, this hostility in your actions, but in your attitudes, in your nature, all of that has changed. And it's changed not by anything that you've done. It's by Jesus's physical body. I love the fact that he says this right here. It's his physical body. And let's remember that when Jesus died on the cross, he really physically died. He was really physically buried. He really, really physically rose from the dead. He really physically ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And when when he died on the cross, he did it for a purpose. It's right here in the verse, and it's wonderful. It's, it's relational. It's, it's reconciliation. What he did was he died so that he can present you as holy, faultless, and blameless before himself. Now, if that sounds vaguely familiar from another passage in Scripture, it should because Paul picks up this theme and he uses it in a different way. Actually, what he does is he gives us a metaphor and application for it in another place that we can see in our lives. And so we're gonna take a little jaunt over to Ephesians 5 for a quick second. And this is what it says. It says, Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, he did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, here's what I know. Statistically speaking, the majority of Americans are single. Did you know that? So the majority of Americans are single um, and not married, and then only half of those who are married are husbands. So I know I'm, I'm statistically getting to a smaller group of people. And so I'm just going to talk to husbands for a second as a way of pointing out this metaphor and this application everybody else gets to listen, okay? Your marriage, for those of you who are husbands, is a sermon that you preach every single day. The people around you, your neighbors, your coworkers, your strangers, and the tiny little people in your home, if you have them, they listen to you preach the sermon every day in the way you relate to your wife. And how you treat your wife is meant to be a picture of how Jesus loves the church. Let's look at the sermon for a second. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So husbands, your job in your marriage, this application of this principle that he's giving us is to give yourself up to your wife as Jesus did. And remember how Jesus did that? He died on the cross. So that doesn't mean after church you run to Menards, get some wood, put a cross up in the backyard, uh, say goodbye to the family. That's not what we're saying. Um, what, what, what he's saying here is you give yourself up. You give up your life, which means you lay down your very life for your family. You lay down uh, your preferences. You lay down your desires. You lay down everything for the sake of these people that he has brought into your life, and especially your wife. Not only that, look at how Paul says the husband does this. He says to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water by the word. And that may sound strange, but here's what he's saying. Husbands, it is your job in your home to be the one applying the Bible to your marriage. You're the one applying the gospel of Jesus to your marriage. You take the truths of the Bible and apply them in the context of that relationship and encourage your wife to follow Jesus. And here's where this ties back to Colossians because this is where it sounds familiar. He did this that's Jesus in this picture he's given us for the marriage, to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. And so get this. 
When Jesus looks at you, you guys, when he looks at the church, he sees perfection. He presents you to himself as one without spot or wrinkle or anything like that. Because he knows that's where he's getting you. He's bringing you to that place. Now he knows you're not perfect now, but the way he looks at you is that way. And, and so we as husbands, for those of us who are husbands, we are to do this with our wives. We're to look at them and present them to ourselves the way Jesus presents the church to himself. Through the lens of scripture, he sees her as perfect and holy and blameless. And I know there might be a few elbows right now, and so just go ahead and elbow away. <laughs> but let me tell you this. Here's where the world is lying to you through algorithms. If you were wondering when I was gonna get to that. Imagine, if you will, what the world, what the internet tells you about Christian marriages and Christian husbands in particular, evangelical Christian men in particular. I want you to imagine what the world tells you right now, what you see online. Got that? Now let me tell you what the data tells us. From decades of psychological research, we know this. Statistically, there's no question. Evangelical men who regularly attend church with their families are the most engaged fathers of any group. They are most likely to spend time with their kids, reading with them, playing with them, disciplining them, and the wives of evangelical Christian husbands are most likely of any group, statistically speaking, to say that they feel loved and appreciated by their husbands. And they have by far the lowest rates of domestic violence of any group in America. Why? Because when our minds change, our actions change. So often we get this backward. People are always trying to adjust their actions, but they, it doesn't work. It doesn't work unless you have a change of mind, and a change of mind only comes from a change of nature. And so right now, what we have right here, in the stats that I just shared with you coming off of Ephesians 5, is a statistically measurable picture of what Jesus says is a picture of what Jesus does with the church. Now, let's go back to Colossians. See what this has to do with Colossians, verse 22, again. But now he, that's Jesus, has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. What he's saying here is Jesus changes you from the inside out so that he can present you to himself as perfect. Does that mean we achieve perfection this side of glory? No way, not just like your wife is not per perfect on this side of glory. But you, he presents the church to himself that way because he knows we're gonna mess up, we're gonna sin until that day we're in front of Jesus in eternity for all glory and then he'll make us perfect for all time. And at that moment, because we were alienated and we are now reconciled, we now know that right now we can cha live changed lives just like Paul calls these husbands to do in Ephesians 5. Watch this. Next verse, verse 23. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. And this verse is another reason why the plural you in, in Colossians is so important. Because he's talking to all of you. 
to you, skies, if you, skies, remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. When we overly, in, um, individualistically apply passages like this to ourselves, we often just think he's just talking to me. He's just talking about me and my personal faith. And if you do that, sometimes you can read a verse like this out of context and think, oh, this means that I can lose my salvation, that I gotta work hard to be grounded in this faith. You know, if I don't do that, if I don't remain, I'm gonna lose it, all of that. But that's not what he's talking about. Paul is writing to the Colossians in their collective nature. And he's saying, listen, where you put your faith, where you put your hope, is it on the gospel, the one true gospel, the one that's been proclaimed everywhere, the one that I'm a servant of, the one that converted me, he says, from a terrorist to an evangelist? Or have you shifted your hope? Have you shifted your faith? Have you shifted your grounding to something different? And this is where you need to read scripture in context. This shift in thinking in the Colossians is described in a lot more detail in the next chapter. And so at risk of stealing thunder from teaching that passage, we need to jump forward and jump back to see what he's talking about. What is the shift that is taking place? Let's look at two verses in the next chapter, verse four and verse eight. Colossians two, uh, verse four says this. He says, I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than on Christ. So what is he saying? He's saying, well, there's a deception in, in the world around us. And we know what deception is. We know what deceit is. It's, it's a lie. And Paul is saying there's a deception in this world that sounds reasonable to us, but it's empty, and he's not saying all philosophy is bad. He's just saying what? Be careful. He's like, he's like, be careful when you're dealing with the philosophy of the world around you. There's a way of looking at this world around us that has crumbly foundations, but it sounds good to us. So let's look at the two examples he gives us. He says human tradition. What is human tradition? Well, human tradition is having a worldview that has its origins in human thinking, how things have always been done, how we've always done it, how our human societies have decided to organize ourselves. Just how have we together collectively as humans tried to figure things out? That is human tradition. What is the elements of the world? Well, that's just the scientific stuff. It's the stuff that we can, we can hear and see and taste and touch and smell. And Paul is not arguing that all human tradition and all scientific study is bad or deceptive or any of that, but some of it is. And how do we know which one is and which one isn't? It's in his last line, rather than Christ. So for those of you who are Christians, let me just talk to you for a second, because I know there's people here who are not. Let's just talk for a second. For us, everything is about Jesus. Jesus is our filter. Jesus and his world, word is the filter through which we look at the wor world. And so when human tradition or, or, or elements of the world or philosophy proposes a philosophy that sounds reasonable to us, but it violates the word, we can know that it's empty or deceptive. And, and like the, that passage I read earlier in Ephesians 5, sometimes the world tells us um, th that how we are to, to relate to one another in marriage might be different than how Scripture tells us to do it. But it, it sounds reasonable. But we say, no, 
there is something in God's word that is telling us something different. And, and trying to apply this worldview to our world can be tricky, can be difficult. Um, there's a guy named Tim Keller, he used to be a, a pastor in New York, and, and this is what he wrote. Um, he says, uh, we manipulate our environment by imagining the environment to be what we want, what we prefer, what would please us. <laughs> an environment in which we can be in charge, and after we imagine it to be that, we then respond to that rather than reality. The problems of our life so often come from that. Why? Because we have a God complex. We want to be in charge. Now, here's what's wild. Keller wrote that back in 1994. Before I was married... (laughs) before the internet had taken over our lives. And now, this is sort of exactly how we live, isn't it? Now, we imagine a world that is perfectly in sync with our desires. And now, the internet and and social media and everything around us tells us that we are right about that, that how we want to live, how we want to behave, how we we want our preferences for the world around us to be is how the world actually is. And then what happens is we then begin to operate as if that's the real world. And this is really where we get to that idea of algorithms and the AI. If you're like me, every day you're tempted to just mindlessly swipe through Facebook or Twitter or TikTok. And if your phone tracks the amount of time you spend on those apps, go look at that and freak yourself out. And what, what happens when we, when we mindlessly flip through these 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 different platforms. Well, we're fed more of what we like and we're, we're, we're fed more of how we see the world. And marketing companies have figured this out and that's what they do. So we know actually how these, we don't know the exact algorithms, but we know what these do. Like for instance, we know that Instagram uh, looks at the relationships that you have with other people and what's popular out in the world, and what you're into, and anytime it can intersect those things together, it feeds you that. That's what pops up on your page. Your relationships, what you're into, and the things that are popular in this world. TikTok looks at your previous interactions, not just the stuff you like and bookmark, but how long you watch something, even if it's milliseconds. If you pause for milliseconds on something, it knows that you paused for milliseconds on something, and it feeds you more of that stuff. Facebook looks at the type of content that you like. If you like videos, it gives you videos. If you like Conspiracy theories, it gives you conspiracy theories. If you like videos about conspiracy theories, it gives you videos about conspiracy theories, right? And what happens is, in each of these platforms, you're fed content that's tailor-made to keep you on whatever platform you're on. And regardless of the platform, AI has just learned that the trick to keeping you around is getting you to believe two things. That your worldview is correct and popular. And it might not be either. It might not be correct, and it might not be popular. It just finds the pocket of information that it wants to feed you. And, and by the way, here's a little pro tip. You can actually change what the algorithm feeds you. In both Instagram and TikTok, for instance, um, if something pops up in the image or a video that you don't want to see, just hold on it, and then it'll pop up a little thing, and you hit not interested, and it'll give you less of that. They think it's cool because they're going to give you less, uh, more accurate marketing, but you can get rid of stuff that causes you to sin, by the way. You can do the same thing with the rest of your life. You can click not interested or interested in your life. Look at this verse again. 
if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Paul says, here's a key to syncing up your actions and your attitudes with the new nature you have in Jesus. Remain grounded. Remain steadfast in the faith. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. Well, what is faith? What is the hope of the gospel? Quite simply, it's the truth that God created this world and he ordered it in a certain way where all things have been created by Jesus for Jesus. That he is supreme above all things, including us, including human tradition, including uh, the philosophy of the world. And, and like Keller said, we want to be in charge. We have a God complex. We want to be supreme. And so what happens is we fail at every turn. And so what we end up doing, because we violate how God ordered the world to be, is we end up hurting people. We end up hurting ourselves. And we live in a world of hurt. And the Bible calls that sin. And we're all mired in it. And once we realize our place in the universe is not on the throne we can gain some perspective. We can realize that we have a savior that exists above the fray and a savior that also stepped into it and understands us. That when Jesus came, he lived a sinless life that we could not live, uncorrupted by the world around him and human philosophy that could be deceptive. He died on the cross for our sins. He, he rose again, he ascended to heaven. And, and when we accept that this is what he did for us to save us from ourselves, it changes everything. So my challenge to you is the best way to combat how the world thinks about things is to meditate on Jesus. Think about Jesus. Let me just give you some practical ways to do it. This isn't a law, it's just suggestions. Maybe when you get up in the morning, take a minute to, to read or listen to the word before you start doom scrolling. Maybe make it a habit, just a few verses. It's one of the reasons, I don't know, anybody who follows me on any social media platform, on uh, actually just Twitter and Facebook, I post a Bible verse every morning. I do that to break your feed. My goal is that if you get up in the morning and you start doom scrolling, at least one Bible verse will go past your screen. <laughs> and that's my goal, um, is to break your feed a little bit, right? And, and so start your morning that way, or, or maybe just end your day that way. Maybe instead of sitting on your phone at the last second, all you're doing is scrolling through TikTok before you go to sleep and you fall asleep with your phone in your hand, scrolling through TikTok right there. Maybe... Read some of the word of God about Jesus right before you go to bed and maybe your REM sleep will process that stuff through the night. Maybe start using an analog Bible to slow you down just a little bit. And you know, on the social media front, just break the algorithm. You can actually do it. Unfollow accounts that get you riled up, that cause you to sin whether that be a, a sin of the, the things that you're viewing that you shouldn't be viewing or the sin of having an attitude toward people that you shouldn't have, unfollow those. Use that little trick to say you're not interested. Create, if you're a creator, create positive content. The kind of stuff that doesn't stir the pot. We live in a connected world, it, we're not going back. Like I said earlier, unless there's some kind of post-apocalyptic Netflix movie that comes true and all of a sudden we're all riding on horses, uh, you know, <laughs> down Cedar Street trying to shoot a rabbit with a, you know, slingshot to live, to live, Alex, because we need to eat, right? Short of that happening, short of that happening, 
world's not going back. We live in a connected world. So we just need to figure out how to live and follow Jesus. And the way we do that is we stay grounded in him, steadfast in our hope. Don't let our hope shift away from Jesus to something in this world. And if you start feeling like your hope is being placed on politicians or on culture or on some kind of media that's being fed to you, then, then you're starting, your, your hope is shifting away. Refocus yourself back on Jesus. Let's remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and the hope of the gospel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that you've placed us in this moment in history. I really truly believe that every one of us is here because you want us here. So we're not afraid. We're not afraid of um, AI uprising or the algorithm or any of that kind of stuff, but this is the world you placed us in. And so we just pray that in this world, we would remain grounded and steadfast in the faith that no matter what is fed to us online or in person from people, that we would not be shifted away from the hope of the gospel that that same gospel that was proclaimed in all of creation that caused Paul to go from terrorist to evangelist, that that same gospel would fuel us. Help us to be people mindful of the ways that we are being impacted by the world around us and focus steadfastly on Jesus, the only one who saves. We pray all this in his precious saving name. Amen.